Okay, you can remain standing for the reading of God's Word. From Psalm 147. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it never goes out and returns to you empty. We pray that you would teach us from it today, that you would uh, sink it deep in our hearts, that you would do so through your spirit and to your, your glory. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Well, one Christmas in the early 90s, I don't remember exactly what year it was, but uh, wonder of wonders, Christmas morning, my dad took my brother and me out into the garage and opened this big box and showed us our very first computer. Uh, it was incredible. Uh, it went up in the family room, and the very first website that we ever went to, my brother's choice, he was older than me, it was a squabble, uh, but it was NBA.com. And it, when you went to NBA.com, it took 10 minutes to load, and there was a little spinning basketball on there that said NBA. And, uh, we couldn't believe it. It was amazing. Now, the internet is far more a part of our lives now, uh, but if I really think about it, and probably you too, even now, I don't really know where it came from or who invented it, uh, what it was made for originally, uh, or if we're using it today the way that it was designed. Recently, I heard an interview with uh, a guy named David D. Clark, who teaches at MIT and is considered, apparently, one of the architects of the internet. Uh, and so they asked him what he wanted to tell people about the early days of the internet, and he said this. He said, people should realize that the internet is an engineered artifact. It is not something that just happened. Well, so too our world and our lives, right? According to scripture, they did not just happen. Uh, they are actually engineered artifacts, and as such, they have an engineer behind them. If you're a Christian, then you believe 
that the engineer, big E, engineer, is the triune God of the Bible who made all things good and who has a purpose. Because of that, we have to acknowledge that our world works in a certain way. In fact, it works in the way that God made it. Uh, Umberto Eco, uh, when asked, uh, he's an author, if, uh, if he programs and micromanages the characters in his books, he said, no, but they are obliged to act according to the laws of the world in which they live. And so are we, right? We're obliged to live according to the design and the desires of the God who made us. But the problem, so Christianity says, of course, is that there is uh, a broken relationship between the Creator and the creatures. And that relationship has been broken because of the breaking of God's laws. Uh, Sin is at the mucky bottom of it, uh, lawlessness. It's The uh, Shorter Catechism says, any wants of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So that the reality is that every day we sin in thought, word, and deed. And so sin has gummed up the works of this world so that now it feels a little bit like the internet. And by that I mean, if you spend some time on there, as I'm sure you have, um, you realize pretty quickly that the internet is a reflection of life, right? Uh, It's a mishmash of good and bad and funny and tragic. And some areas of the internet are right and true and helpful. But there are also dark corners where sin and hatred and confusion reign. And and that is our world. We have gotten sideways with God because of sin. So where does that leave Christians? Uh, Well, it leaves us with a little bit of a gap. Uh, It leaves us with... Uh, the gap between our professed belief in a God who is in complete control and our functional belief that sometimes it doesn't really look that way. And so sometimes, in our worst moments, we despair over what we see in the news. We despair over uh, our own faults and failures. So at times, our lives are really saying, wait, who made all this? And uh, is it good? And what are we doing here? And what is the point of all this? I think Psalm 147 is one antidote to this type of despair. Psalm 147, if you let it sort of prick your heart, uh, can inoculate you towards some of the madness that is around us and inside of us. Or, think of it this way. If life is like a book and you don't particularly like the chapter that you're in, then this psalm is a little bit of the author's blurb on the book jacket. And we can flip to it and remember that the author of the story is someone that we can trust. In other words, Psalm 147 answers this question. How do we function in troubling and uncertain times? When the wheels of justice and righteousness and peace seem to be stuck or maybe even turning backwards... What does God have to do with it, and how should we respond? So we'll look at this in three parts, because the psalm itself breaks down into three parts. I'm going to use the headings from Derek Kidner's great commentary on the psalms. First, uh, verses 1 through 6, the God who redeems. Second, verses uh, 7 through 11, the God who cares. And finally, verses 12 through 20, the God who commands. So the God who redeems, who cares. Who commands? 
So let's look at the first of these, the God who redeems. It's clear in the psalm pretty quickly that uh, this is written to hurting people, or more specifically to people who are familiar with exile. The Bible tells us that that is actually our situation too, right? That we may not be literal refugees, but we are spiritually displaced. And so we are groaning, the scriptures say, with creation. And that's not particularly a Christian thing, right? The nightly news uh, is very much a collective groan that things are not as they should be. But Christians have traditionally spent a lot of time thinking and writing on this idea that the world is passing away. So you can think of uh, Pilgrim's Progress or the song on Jordan's stormy banks. This idea that Christians are in exile, that someday we will be home in the new heavens and the new earth. The Israelites felt this very poignantly, right? They had lost, they had gained rather, and lost both a spiritual and a literal home because of their disobedience. And so they're called, in verse 2, the outcasts of Israel, or more literally, the the scattered ones. And there is some disagreement about whether the psalm is pre-exilic or post-exilic. For our purposes, it doesn't make much of a difference. Um, We may not know the psalmist's exact situation, but we can feel an an affinity towards him in that we are not at home either. Uh, No matter the relative cultural power of Christianity, in our particular day and time, we're just passing through. Even so, we're still here, called to live in this world, but not of this world. So what should we do? Well, the psalmist is pretty clear. We should praise the Lord. In fact, the last five psalms of the Psalter, which this is one, all begin and end with praise the Lord. Now that sounds counterintuitive, right? But uh, that's a habit of God's course, to surprise us this way, because the people reading and singing and using this psalm originally are uh, a mess, or at least they will do until the mess gets here, as I heard in a movie one time. Uh, They are scattered, broken, hurt, and weak. And so why praise God in times of trouble? Well, it is because tough times don't last. And actually, despite the saying, tough people don't either. Uh, They die and fade away, just like the rest of us. Uh, But God does not. God does last, and he is faithful. Or, you can think of it in terms of marriage vows, in terms of a covenant. Uh, We say to our spouse that we are with them when we take these vows, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, Till death do us part. In other words, circumstances do not determine our relationship with our spouse, and they should not determine our relationship with God either. So praise the Lord. It's an invocation, it's a call to worship, and afterwards we get to hear why. First, for us, verse 1, worship is good, pleasant, and fitting. It is strong medicine for sick and tired souls. When we're down here in the muck and the mire of life, praise lifts us up. It is a renewal, a feast, a reordering of our affections towards God. Second, for him, who is this God that we praise? Well, in verses 2 and 3, he's a builder, a gatherer, a binder of wounds. In other words, he is a redeemer. 
That idea, of course, is pervasive in Scripture. In the middle of his suffering, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. That is why uh, John Wesley took that and turned it into a hymn. Handel took that and turned it into an aria in his Messiah. God is an architect of good. He is a mother hen. He is a doctor with a deft touch. But what do we mean by a Redeemer exactly? Well, ultimately, of course, from sin. Uh, But in another way, we can say that he is a fixer, a fixer. If you grew up with a dad like mine, uh, then you might see a parallel here. My dad was a farmer, and of course, uh, for a farmer, uh, if the tractor is broken down in the middle of the field, uh, then that's not something that you get to when you have time. Uh, If if the tractor is broken down out there, then you may not eat uh, pretty soon. So you have to go out there and fix it soon, immediately. And so as a kid... I knew exactly what to do when I uh, broke something. Uh, I would take it to Dad. I still do that. I'm 31 years old. Um, He will know what to do. He will fix it. Well, so too our Heavenly Father. He fixes broken things. Sometimes here in this world, but fully and finally in the world to come. He fixes broken marriages. He fixes sad and selfish hearts. Uh, He works through His Spirit to breathe new life into dead Things And so we, sh- we can and should praise him in the middle of all the brokenness of our world and even of our own hearts because though they may not be fixed now, ultimately they will be. We have his promise. But how powerful is this redeemer? Does he have a range or a specialty, we might ask? Well, verses 4 and 5 give us some clues. He's so powerful that he determines the number of the stars. And so personal that he gives them all names. The prophet Isaiah echoes this. God is he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Because he is strong in power, not one is missing. In fact, in a lot of the psalmists, Kidner says, we're actually singing the tune of Isaiah. His power and wisdom is without measure. God knows the right thing to do, and he is always able to do it. And the same God, the same Redeemer, is the one who, verse 6, lifts up the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. In other words, he is just. Therefore, verse 7, we should sing to the Lord with thanksgiving in all circumstances. Praise the Lord, the God who redeems. Second, He is the God who cares. The psalmist has told us about how God numbers the stars, and now he sort of descends towards us in verses 8 and 9. God covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beast their food. The stars are beautiful. They declare God's glory and his power to us. But here the benefits are more direct. Right? The clouds bring rain, that bring grass, that feed the beasts of the wild, that give us food in turn. So the creation is sort of like a big Rube Goldberg machine, working for our good. I don't know if you've thought about this. I had not up until now. But almost everything we eat, even if it is corn that has been processed into little chunks of sugar that we feel very bad about eating, uh, God grew it. Right? Uh, at some point, uh, it was out in a field somewhere underneath rain and clouds, 
in blue skies and starry nights, uh, it's just breakfast to us. But in reality, it is God marshalling all kinds of powerful natural processes to take care of us, to give us provision. And that's just food, right? That's just one aspect of this. I mean, what would happen if God withdrew all of his provision, even for a moment? No food, no water, no air, no blood pumping through our veins. We know what would happen then. But we don't think about that very much, right? We operate as if we don't live in an engineered artifact, as if nature is sort of automatic and self-determining, and stars and clouds and rain and crops and animals are just sort of there. Uh, And the psalmist reminds us here that that is not true, that this is the work of our Creator and our Redeemer. I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but uh, it struck me when I was thinking about this that I say grace over meals like the food is just five seconds away from expiring. Maybe you do the same. God, thank you for this day and the food that you give us. Please bless to our bodies. Amen. Like I'm a character in a movie trying to uh, diffuse a bomb that's about to go off. Like red wire, blue wire, green wire. Thank you for the food. Please bless to our bodies. Okay, I said the code. Now we can eat. Right? That's what it feels like sometimes. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is, is my heart, of course. God isn't really interested in my code and my sort of pseudo-prayer. It's the heart issue uh, is what we're getting at in verses 10 and 11. That this God, this author and engineer, this creator and redeemer, what does he require of us? How do we act according to his design and desires? It's pretty clear that he wants to be praised. He tells us that often. But what exactly do we owe him in our praise? Well, here's what he's not very impressed by. Verse 10, the strength of the horse or the legs of a man. This is martial imagery, right? This is war imagery. Israel is scattered. It's homeless. It is on the streets of the world, in a sense. And uh, when people are in that situation, it makes them want to rely, we are the same way, on earthly power. When you're scared, in other words, you want safety. You want things Uh, that you can see and touch and feel that can help you win your battles. Is that us as Christians? This is a good question to ask. Is that you? What are your horses, your battalions? Are they earthly things maybe, like cultural and political power? Or maybe they're more spiritual things, but they're used in an earthly way. Maybe you use knowledge, Bible knowledge, apologetics, Maybe even the means of grace that God has given us. Words, sacraments, and prayer. We should be careful. It's easy to put our hope in those things because they're so close to being right. We can actually have all of those things and still be wrong. Francis Schaeffer said, we don't live by either keeping a list or ignoring a list. We, we live by moving from an outward situation to an inward one. He says, I can take lists that men make, and I can seem to keep them, but to do this, my heart does not have to be bowed. The bowed heart. That is the inward situation we're talking about in verse 11. It says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. We should pay attention here, because this great God is looking at us. And this is the rub. Uh, It's possible... I heard this recently, uh, 
possible to know pretty much everything about God except that he is watching. He's watching. So fear and hope. He's talking about your heart, of course. Uh, what is your heart other than your deepest hopes and fears? Those are the biggest, the inmost gears of the engine of you. In the Bible, the heart isn't just the seat of emotions. I say often, it is the seat of everything. Your desires, your loves, your vision of the good life. Your hopes and your fears are connected, by the way, if you've ever thought about this. Uh, we fear that what we hope in will be taken from us. And we hope that our fears will never be realized. And God steps right into the middle of that, into the middle of your heart, and, so, <clears throat> and says both of those things should be pointed directly at me. He says, not at your spouse, and not at your retirement account, uh, your house, not even your wisdom or your faith or your repentance. God says, I myself am the only hope that will never fail you. I am the only fear you can have that will never overpower you. Now that is very counterintuitive, right? But the weapons of war in this groaning world would be entirely inward. A heart whose ultimate hope and ultimate fear is in the Lord our God. Nobody else talks like this, right? Nobody else cares about our heart more than our legs. They say, no one cares more about who we are than what we do. I've been reading a very good book on addiction. It's called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Uh, it's written by a doctor who's worked on Skid Row in Vancouver for something like 25 years. And he likes to point out that uh, we are all on the scale of addiction somewhere. The only question is what we are addicted to. So his example in his own life he uses uh, is classical music. He is a compulsive classical music buyer. Now, I don't know if he's a Christian, but that is a very Christian idea that actually we can take a good thing and we can worship it sinfully. And he points out that a lot of addictions are socially acceptable so that uh, not only do we not ignore them, at worst, uh, we applaud them. So if you're a workaholic, for example, uh, you could be simultaneously disconnected from your family. You could be unable to relax, constantly on edge, and you could be getting rewarded for that with bonuses and promotions at your job. Such is life in a world that values the strength of the horse, the legs of a man, that values the outward over the inward. And often, we are right there. But God is different, right? He is not so easily impressed. In fact, he is impressed by very little. He says, I take pleasure in those that fear me, in those who hope in my steadfast love. So how do we relate to God in troubling and uncertain times? We start here in the posture of verse 11. In a healthy fear that God would withdraw his hand, even for a moment, and in hope that he will not forsake us as he has promised it, he'll build something better, that he'll gather his scattered church and bind up their wounds. We think that we have to do all those things. Often we put that on ourselves, but it's not true. We just have to be connected to the one who can. And that is very hard to do, right? I mean, if it was easier, we would be better at it, but we're not. 
So how do we do this? Well, the psalmist says we do it by looking to God's Word. And that is our final section here, the God who commands. Verse 12 begins the cycle again. Praise the Lord. Jerusalem, Zion, Christians, you who have seen God at work and know that you can trust Him, praise Him. Verses 13 and 14, He strengthens, He blesses, He makes peace and provides for you. And then in verse 15, we get a taste of where the psalmist is going. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. In other words, God rules our our world by the word of his power at all times and at all seasons. The snow, verse 16, is a word from our God. The frost-like ashes, the crystals of ice are his. The weather right now is not cooperating with my illustration, but you remember what snow looks like, right? The earth is covered in them, and no one can stand before his cold. And then in a breath, one more word, and it all melts. Verse 18, there we go, it all melts, it's warm. This is God in his creative splendor, in his comprehensive sovereignty, the artist at work commanding every little detail in his world. How does God accomplish his will? All he needs to do is speak. Rain and snow and sunlight and drought and flood, spring, summer, fall, winter, they go out from his mouth like a king sends his messengers. There are tools in his tool belt, brushes in his studio. Spurgeon said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes that every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. This God has spoken to us in his salvation. One commentator says, his salvific activity is creative. His creative activity is salvific. He is creator and redeemer. Verse 19, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Kidner says, God doesn't program us, he addresses us. He seeks a relationship, not just a a sequence of actions carried out. And that is the problem with our, our lists and our codes. So here's a question. When you relate to God, do you favor his transcendence or his imminence? I think that most of us are on one uh, side or the other. In other words, are you generally thinking about God's greatness and his power, his authority, or are you generally thinking about his kindness, his provision in your life, his nearness? My family uh, back in Tennessee has a boat with two engines, if you sort of mash on one and forget about the other, then you, you could go sideways, but you could very well go in a circle as well. Uh, there are some things in Christianity that I think are like that. Is Jesus fully God or fully man? Is, is, uh, is God transcendent or imminent? I think in these questions, we need both engines wide open. The answer is yes. He is powerful and personal. The psalm reminds us that we have to hold those things together in our minds, that he is creator beyond our comprehension, that he is also redeemer, seeking a relationship and not a sequence of actions, not a list, 
not an outward situation. Therefore, this God, abundant in power, with wisdom beyond measure, in command of the stars in the sky, all the way down to the blades of grass on the ground, he stepped down. The transcendent became imminent. He didn't just send out his word like a messenger, right? Uh, His word became flesh and brought the message all the way down to our doorstep in Jesus, face to face. When I want my uh, little three-year-old to pay attention to me, I hold his little face, right? And I say, listen, and I talk to him that way. That is what God has done in Jesus. So that you could tell us, yes, sin has gummed up the works. It has broken and separated you from me, from the Creator. But in Jesus, he says, I've paid the bill myself. And now, because Jesus is open that way, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. That is, in those who acknowledge their sin toward him and their dependence on him. And in those who hope in his steadfast love. That is, in those who have put their hope in Jesus, crucified, dead, raised. Jesus is the answer to every question that we have in the psalm. How will God build something better? How will he gather his scattered ones and bind up all of our wounds? How will he strengthen and bless and make peace? These are promises, and the Apostle Paul says that uh, in God, in Christ, we find uh, yes here. We find God's yes and amen. And then he says, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All these things, in other words, lead us to praise, to the type of praise found in this psalm. He is already fulfilling the promises laid out here. When you gather to worship, and there are people here who you would not maybe choose to socialize with otherwise, uh, and you stand shoulder to shoulder and declare through song in confession and prayer, you are broken and sinful and in need of a Savior, that is a gathering of the scattered ones, right? When Christianity is dying in the West, but it's exploding in China and Africa and Latin America, that means that God is on the move. He's strengthening, blessing, making peace. When the world feels as chaotic as the Internet, in reality... It's the most engineered artifact ever made. We live in troubling and uncertain times. I think there can be no argument about that. It's true, but we have something sure and stable, even perfect to hang our hat on in God himself. So through faith in Jesus, turning from sin, putting your hope and your fear in the Lord, the outward situation becomes an inner one. And we close the gap between what we say we believe, and what our lives really look like. The statutes, the rules become our pleasure as we live according to the engineer's design and desires. And through him, uh, maybe even our cultural moment becomes not so much a burden to bear, but a field that is white for harvest. And Through him we fret less. What can man do to me, right? And we hope more, not in the things of this world, than the things of the one to come. And then when we question who made all this and what is the point, we look square at Jesus, the creator and redeemer worthy of praise. How do we relate to God in troubling and uncertain times? It's through his word in a posture of hope and fear centered on Jesus Christ.
Let me pray for us. God, we thank you again for your word. We pray that you would teach us healthy hope, healthy fear. We might love you, trust you as creator and redeemer, and that we would fight the despair that, that so often arises in us through your word and through the knowledge that Jesus Christ has come. That he is your yes and your amen to all of your promises. We can trust you because of that. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen.